Today is our last study on the uh, short study of the book of Acts where we saw a lot of a first. Here, first we saw the first resurrection in Jesus Christ. And the first resurrection of Jesus Christ started every first blessings of God. So we saw first preaching from Peter on the day of Pentecost. He was not ready, yet he delivered Spirit-filled message. And then we saw the first church where Holy Spirit created a community of uh, loving and uh, uh, caring and uh, learning fellowship. And then we saw the first church discipline in the case of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And then last week we saw the first martyr or witness, Stephen, who gave his uh, life a faithful testimony of the gospel. Today, in our last study, on the followers of the way, we will see first evangelist, and his name is Philip. Some of you might question, how come, Pastor Paul, you called Philip was the first evangelist? Didn't Peter and the other apostles evangelize first? As you will see later, Philip was officially recognized as an evangelist for the first time in the New Testament. While there were others who shared the gospel before Philip, he was an exemplary evangelist. When I say Philip is a first evangelist, more than a time, I'm talking about faithful and the fullness of a Philip's evangelism. And we need an evangelist like Philip more than ever. Although we have many professional and self-proclaimed and even TV evangelists and nowadays internet evangelists. But America, we need more evangelists like Philip in the face of a racial divide and acrimony that we all experience. True, faithful people of gospel like Philip not only converted people into believers, but also change the world with the goodness of Jesus. So today, I want to share with you two challenges of being faithful witnesses of the gospel in the examples of Philip. So let me read Acts chapter 8, verse 1 to 4 for the context. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, all except the apostles who were scattered throughout the Judea Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. With the martyrdom or death of Stephen, a violent persecution broke out, led by Saul. And then verse 1 tells us, except the apostles, many believers left Jerusalem. Now, why did the apostles stay in Jerusalem? Scholars believe that they stayed to look after those members in great need, such as sick people and poor people and old members. And later we find that as a result, one of the apostles, James, was killed in Acts chapter 12, and Peter almost died. Now, key word in this passage is a scattered, scattered. That's the word that Luke chose to describe those believers who fled from the persecution. 
And the word scattered is actually not just dispersed. It is actually farming term. It's an agricultural term. Back then, when farmers planted seed, they spread the seed to the air and wind, take a blue wind kind of a place them on the ground. So what Luke trying to say here is the wind of a persecution ironically spread the seeds of the gospel. Wind of a persecution spread the seeds of the gospel. In other words, the bad news to the church of Jerusalem became a good news to the people in other areas. It is a somber fact that Jesus' great commission in Acts chapter 1-8, when Jesus said, when, Holy Spirit, when you receive a Holy Spirit, you will have a power and then you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. That great commission in Acts chapter 1-8 was fulfilled, Acts chapter 8-1, through the persecution. It is a wind of a persecution that started early Christians move toward God's will. You know, sometimes when we don't move in God's direction, God changes our circumstance for us to move or do so. So among those who took the gospel outside of Jerusalem was a Philip. Philip was an exemplary evangelist. So let's read the Philip's you know, story. The first story we will read about Philip is a chapter five, uh, uh, verse 5. So Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowd heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Well, for with the shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed or lame or healed. So there was a great joy, there was a great joy in the city. Philip was one of the seven deacons selected in Acts chapter 6. And like Stephen, he was a Hellenized Jew a Jew born and raised in Greco-Roman world outside of Palestine. His name, Philip, originated from a famous Greek king, Philip the Great. And Philip the Great is the one who unified Macedonia and Greece. And he is also famous to be a father of, some of you know, of Alexander Great. And our Philip, our deacon Philip today conquered something that many kings and great conquerors couldn't defeat. That is, he conquered the racial prejudice with the radical love of God in Jesus Christ. So first thing about Philip is he conquered racial prejudice. That means accept others with the love of God instead of avoiding them or accusing them. So let me show you the map where to show, uh, let me, uh, let's see the map to show where Philip is. So do you see Jerusalem on the south, you know, on the sort of a uh, low, low, in the kind of a south? Yes, thank you. Thank you for showing. And then that's a Judea. And then uh, there is a Galilee on the top and between uh, Judea and Galilee, there is a Samaria. Now, Philip evangelized this area called Samaria. And that's a very unusual place for Jewish people to do any work, let alone the religious work. Because there is a deep-seated uh, enmity uh, between Jews and Samaritans. Their mutual hostility 
was more than 700 years old by this time. So let me briefly explain who Samaritans were. They were half Jews and half Gentiles. According to 2 Kings chapter 17, when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, after Solomon, kingdom was divided. Southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah, and they called themselves Jews. Jews. The word Jews came out of that southern kingdom, Judah. Northern kingdom people called their Israelite. So they kind of, yeah, that's the, I mean, they were Israelite before then, but they just took the term, they are the real Israelite. Now, the Assyrians, they not only conquered, but they colonized in a very unique way. The way they colonized is that they brought, they threw the mass deportation. They took the half of the people to the other ends of the empire, and they brought the uh, other people from other end of the uh, empire to this area, and they, they kind of mixed them. So created this very uh, mixed uh, uh, new people that blurs the national uh, identity and conscience. So they, that's how they prevented any revolt. So as a result, Samaritans were considered by Jews to be racially impure and religious, Im, religiously inferior. Even though they uh, continued to worship Israel's God and they even observed the, uh, Moses' law. Do you remember last week, uh, Reba, I gave a, a good message about uh, to ch our children about the Samaritan Jesus encounter with the Samaritan woman and the story. They had uh, their own versions of a Pentateuch, and uh, they were also uh, waiting for the Messiah. Yet, they counted for little in conventional Jewish evaluation of a Samaritan. Jews hated the Samaritan as a half breed, like a, a half blood in Harry Potter's story. Just like the children of interracial marriages were hated by white supremacists in the South, Samaritans hated by the Jews. And between them, there was a long, tumultuous history of a conflict. For instance, in the third century, the, a king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, king of Seleucid, a kingdom built after the Solomon, uh, the Alexander Great, died, one of his generals, the, the kingdom was divided into four, one of the kingdom was Seleucid king, and they tried to really make everybody Greek, and when the Jews resisted, he actually attacked the Jews and killed many uh, for observing the Mosaic law, and they even brought the uh, head of a pigs to Jerusalem temple to offer, not to God, but Zeus. And during that horrible time, Samaritans joined the Seleucid army in massacring Jewish people. And then Jewish people revolted under um, uh, Maccabean brothers, and the, one of the Maccabean brothers retaliated, not only beat the uh, Seleucid uh, uh, army, but he reinvaded Samaria and, and destroyed the Samaritan temple. So there is an ongoing uh, attack between them. And uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, in his book, he simply said, without much explaining, he simply said, Samaritans, they kill Jews when Jews come to their territory. That's what the Josephus says. And uh, oh, that's not the Josephus. This is uh, Eusebius. We'll come to that one later. 
Now, do you know uh, in the gospel, John chapter 8, verse 48, when Pharisees had a heated argument with Jesus and cursed at Jesus, they called Jesus Samaritan. Jews answered him, and we write in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed. To Jews, Samaritan is a curse word, as a horrible as a demonic. Can you imagine somebody called you that you are the worst person and you are Texan? You know, if somebody called Texan as a curse word, how do you feel? By the way, why did Philip go to Samaria in the first place? He was evading persecution of Jew. And just like everyone else, he knew that Jews rarely venture into Samaria. So Samaria was a relatively safe place. That's why he went there. However, Philip was not taking, just taking a refuge or hiding out in Samaria. He continued to do what he used to do in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel. And then, you know, whenever Holy Spirit, you know, prompted him, healing people and praying for the people. Here is a challenge. We are all going through this pandemic, but do you continue to do in terms of a spiritual discipline what you used to do? Verse 5, Philip went to the city in Samaria, proclaimed the Messiah there. As a result of a ministry, verse 8 said, there was a great joy in that city. The Greek word for great joy is a polykara. The Greek word kara is a joy, actually came from the same root word charis, which means grace. Grace of God who accepts all people unconditionally through His Son, Jesus Christ, always creates a joy in those who come to Him. So, instead of repeating or perpetuating the same racial prejudice and religious acrimonies that Jews did to Samaritans, Philip the Hellenistic Jew, he proclaimed that whether we are Jew or Greek doesn't matter. There is a good news that that transcend all our racial divide because through Jesus Christ, God opened his heart and welcomed anyone who comes to him. So that's what Philip did. And do you know what's the result of that? Not only Samaritans believed, you know, believed the gospel and that they joined the gospel church, but he not only, Philip not only conquered the racial divide, but he also helped others change their racial biases. Look at the verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria has accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because Holy Spirit had not yet come to any one of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Jerusalem church heard about the Samaritans' acceptance of the Gospels or Jesus, they did not rejoice at first. First, they want to make sure. That means they, they, they want to verify. That's why they sent Peter and John, the key apostles, to Samaria in the first place. 
And then when Peter and John found out the Samaritans were really genuine in their recognition and receiving of Christ, and then they prayed, and then the Holy Spirit came, and that confirms that the apostles said, Oh, God accepted the Samaritans just as, you know, he accepted us. And then look at the verse 25. After they had a father praying, proclaimed the word of the Lord, testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. And now you need to underline your Bible if you have your uh, 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 actual Bible. Preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. That means Peter and John didn't preach in Samaritan villages on their way to Samaria at the beginning, to Philip's town. But after they, 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 they saw God is working in Samaritan, Christ, Samaritans on the way back, now they began to share gospel with the other Samaritans at other, village, other villages. Philip's evangelism in Samaria shows a very important truth. True gospel of Jesus Christ unites different people. Unite different people. A New Testament, you know, a, a biblical commentator actually noted this, and this I like it. He said, in Philip's uh, evangelism, Samaria, the real miracle is not the supernatural healing. The real miracle is being worked. The nationalistic recrimination is being overcome through the Spirit. Jews and Samaritans are being joined together in the body of Christ. The Church of God. Gospel overcomes a racial bias and prejudice. Gospel and racism cannot coexist. That's why we can stand quiet about our current status of a racial relationship in our country. Gospel calls us to fight against any man-made ideology, such as especially the racism, then demean other human beings. So how do we fight racism in our world, especially as a Christian? I want to point out two things. First, we confess to God that we are all racist. Yeah, we are all racist. We are racist in different colors and the shades. We have a different racial and social you know, bias. That's the or preference. That's the beginning. You know, we are all influenced by uh, certain man-made ideologies. And the human ideologies always come with uh, inherent weaknesses. For instance, capitalism demeans the poor. Socialism demeans the rich. Nationalism demeans other nationalists. Elitism demeans the common people. Ageism demeans the young. Anti-ageism it means the old. You know, I lived in four different countries and experienced, uh, in my account, four different cultures. And everybody is self-centered. They put themselves in the center and they marginalize others. Now, that's what I mean. We are racist. We all have a racist tendency in, one of, in every one of us. You... you you know, I thought I'm much better than others. You know, what is my racism and my racial bias? I'll be honest. It's about, you know, it's against the Japan, against the Japan. Yeah. 
You know, uh, 2011, when the Fukushima earthquake happened and then all kind of, uh, you know, difficulty happened in uh, Japan and then uh, news media, I, re I remember a conversation with my, at the time, DBU, you know, colleague, a professor, faculty member that he said, oh, Paul, look at the, how Japanese, they kind of uh, act in a very calmness and they don't panic and they kind of, you know, keep the law and order in place. That's, isn't that amazing? When he said that, you know, guess what I said? You know, Japanese were not like that all the time. 19, you know, early 1900, when there was a major earthquake in Kyoto area, they massacred the 12,000 Korean migrant workers. They have, this is all learned behavior. They are not naturally peaceful people, actually. So I'm kind of, you know, arguing, you know. I can't stand that when, some, when Japanese doing something good. And I know that there is, this is, this reveals. There is a, you know, a, a, a ethnic racial, you know, bias against the Japanese. Of course, it's through the gospel of Christ. I'm repenting. And I really want, you know, I, I really love Japanese. I do pray for them. But I cannot deny the racial bias in me. And I'm aware of it. So we'll first Starting place to fight against racism is that nobody is better than others. Yes, we are all in this together. And second, we converse with the people of different views and learn from each other and challenge each other, especially Christians, to be more faithful to God's call of a new creation. Many of you know that a problematic email that I sent out last Tuesday. One regret I really have is that not just I rushed it with my uh, ethical uh, arrogance, but I forgot to mention that even if there's, I mean, that there's no political agenda or social activism completely, completely, really express our Christian concern. And uh, there are some areas that we don't agree that's something that I should have added to that email. And I want to say this. I really pray and hope that a forest and any every church provides a safe place to disagree. Church is a family of God. And that every family does not judge its members based on their political affiliation. During your Thanksgiving dinner, do you say, hey, are you Democrat and Republican? And that somebody is, is a, you know, opposite of your political affiliation. Do you say, hey, get out of my house. You are not part of this Thanksgiving feast. Family, we accept one another regardless of our political, whatever, you know, ideological stance. If there is nothing in this world can separate us from love of God in Christ Jesus, there's a nothing can divide the church of God, even political opinions. So I want to say very clearly, in the forest, we have a room for both the Trump supporters and those people left behind with the Bidens. We will, we, we, we really, extreme right, you know, extreme left, doesn't matter. In Christ, we stand together and we really try to learn from each other. Let me give you a quote from uh, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, 
said this, No one is born hating another person because of a color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to human heart than its opposite. You know, prejudice and uh, bias and uh, racism is a learned behavior. One time I heard a very interesting uh, 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 testimony, I mean, a talk from a very great pastor, uh, theologian, you know, Gene Getz, our own from in Dallas. Gene Getz is the uh, founder of a uh, uh, fellowship Bibles, uh, Bible church movement and also a solid, a, a, a professor, a solid theologian of a practical theology. A lot of practical uh, theology professors are very uh, superficial, not Gene Guest. Gene Guest is really solid. And also his church, the Fellowship Bible Church, you know, very unique church. Every time the church grows, they kind of divide it into, if any time church becomes, starting with his own church, become a couple thousand, he divided a congregation to three, four hundred, and they multiplied. And then as a result of that, there are about 400 fellowship Bible churches. This is a, this is a, you know, this is a before mega church movement. He did a large church movement, church growth movement in the biblical way. Anyway, the story that I want to tell you is that a Jinget, I remember, has a, one time was a guest speaker to Asian American Pastors Conference. And this is what he said. One day he went to his, uh, uh, visited his granddaughter who was hospitalized. And then his daughter told her very interesting. Is that because before he came, somebody, another bold person, just, you know, uh, came by. In the, in the, and then their, her daughter said, waved her hands, saying, Grandpa. And then a little bit later, she realized that was not Grandpa, and then she just, you know, smiled. But that another bold person was an African-American. African-American. He was not a white as a Jean gets. So Jean gets, he said this, racism is not a problem of nature. Is a problem of a nurture. It's a problem of a nurture. At Forest, I want to foster and nurture safe spiritual environment that we can really seek true speaking in love and we practice conversation without condemnation. Just like any family, we can have a political disagreement without a personal condemnation. Otherwise, Martin Luther King Jr. says, we must learn together as brothers or we must perish together as fools. Now, let me come to the second story of Philip that we see second half of Acts chapter 8. This was his evangelism uh, to Ethiopian uh, eunuch. I think this is one of the most radical stories of a conversion in the New Testament and has an acute prophetic implication to all Christians today. 
So let me read the story. Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 26. Now, angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go, uh, go south to the Lord, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, uh, on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an unimportant official in charge of all treasure of Kandake, which means queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Now, I want you to look at the map again. Find Gaza. Where is Gaza? Do you see Gaza in the left corner? That is in the southern coast of Israel? Jerusalem was much closer to Gaza than Samaria. How come God did not send the apostles from Jerusalem to his fast-moving target, the Ethiopian eunuch who is going from Jerusalem to Gaza to his home, his country? And why in the world did God send the busy deacon and now pastor of many new members in the church of Samaria? It was because Jerusalem church still slumbering in the old Jewish racial bias. A lot of Jewish apostles are still not clear that God opened his heart and the kingdom to everybody, regardless of all, men, all uh, 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 human differences. And the one important lesson you know, we need to learn is our prejudices and biases hold God from using us fully for his glory. My biases prevent God from using me. In contrast here, Philip responds to the call of God right away, dropped everything, and obeyed the Holy call of the Holy Spirit for one soul. That is the second point. He not only conquered the racial you know, bias with the gospel, but he obeyed the Holy Spirit for one person. As a pastor, I'm really challenged by Philip's obedience for sake of one soul, because that's the shepherd's heart. You know, if you're Philip, can you imagine how exciting to be this, uh, you know, spiritual movement in Samaria? You know, so many great things are happening. People are being healed, and the demons are, you know, kicked out, and then there are so many joys. And then also as the church grows, I bet even Philip get paid. They've been taking care of him. And all of a sudden, God calls Philip out of this successful, fruitful ministry to where? A wilderness. And let alone, I mean, it's not an easy call to obey. And especially since Jerusalem is much closer. And actually, Jerusalem apostles, they have less members of people to care for than before because many left. But God called Philip because Philip loves the saving, the salvation of one soul as much as any other great ministry. This obedience of Philip for one soul was reflected by Billy Graham. Billy Graham once said, anytime he feels a mass crusade is more to be more important than personal evangelism, he knew that that's, not a, that's a sign of a lack of a spiritual focus and vigilance. 
his right. Whether you are preaching to 10,000 or sharing gospel with one person, it is God, it is all important work of God. You know, here, God is chasing after this eunuch. And God used Philip. And uh, let's, so let's find out uh, their stories. Now, verse 29, let me read. The Spirit told Philip, Go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading the Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is a passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and the lamb before the shearer is a silent. And so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak? Who can speak of his descendant? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is a prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with every passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to the some water. The eunuch said, Look, here is a water. What can stand the way of my being baptized? And verse 38, and they, Philip, baptized him. And verse 39, when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took the Philip away, and Eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about and preached the gospel in all the town until he reached Caesarea. Now, I want us to really look at this Ethiopian eunuch, this Ethiopian official carefully, this Ethiopian very, very carefully, because he represents every possible marginality a person can have. He is epitome or, or of all marginalized human beings. He was full of ambiguities and contradictions. He is a somebody hard to be defined, okay? Geographically, he is from Ethiopia. Back then, Ethiopia was recognized as the end of the world. You know, the word Ethiopia is a Greek word, which actually means the uh, dark skin or burnt out. So suntan people, that's what they, they kind of describe. And the many Greek uh, uh, literature, they kind of talk about Ethiopia as the, 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 the edge of the earth. So here is a person from an exotic land, edge of the world. Someone who has a dark, whose dark skin made him an object of a speculation and wonder among the Greeks and Romans. And socially, he was slave. Yet, he was a high government official, treasurer of a queen, Kentucky, and, and then he was Kentucky, and he was he was rich like that, uh, you know, he was rich because he owned a you know, book. Back then, owning book is a book was actually a form of scroll. Especially a book like uh, uh, Isaiah is a big scroll. You know, owning scroll like that is a very expensive. That means it's rich. Yet as a slave, his possession was not actually his. Biologically, he was a man, but without a masculinity. You know, if we have to sign something in some application today, what gender, you know, a box they would check? And religiously, 
He was God-fearer, yet he could not enter into the temple because of the law. Deuteronomy 23.1 said, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organs cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So he went all the way to Jerusalem temple, but he could not enter the temple. Can you see? And most importantly, spiritually, you know, he was a well-educated person. He's an intelligent person. You know, he was literate enough to read a Hebrew Bible. Yet, what did he say to Philip today? I don't understand this. Who can tell me about this passage? You know, by the way, this is a very important truth. Everyone needs a guide when it comes to understanding Bible. You know, simply because if you read a Bible, that doesn't mean, you know, you understand God right away. Finding a good, gu- good guide in especially spiritual journey of the Bible is a very important. You know, past week I read, uh, I was reading uh, 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 Luke chapter 10 with uh, my youngest daughter. And the Luke chapter 10, verse 25, there was a very interesting story. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Jesus answered to him, you know, Jesus answered him with two questions. What is written in the law? And Jesus' second question was, how do you read it? And then lawyer answered, love the Lord with your, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, well, you know, that's a, that's a correct, do it. And then he, said, who is my neighbor? He wants to, you know, he read the passage, but he didn't apply that passage fully or biblically. And then that's when Jesus gave the famous parable of a good Samaritan. Don't define your neighbor based on your social preference, but whoever has a need, that is your neighbor that God wants you to love as yourself. Reading Bible is important, but it's another thing to understand. We all need guides when it comes to understand the Bible and live out the biblical values. That's why Good Shepherd College is crucial. And that's what, you know, we really encourage that you are serious about discipleship, then you need to be a serious learner. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ without being a learner. You know, few weeks ago, I received a, a very encouraging email. A young college grad you know, asked me, Pastor Paul, I want to study. I, need to, I want to study systematic theology, systematic theology. What book would you recommend me? You know, I met a lot of young people who said, oh, I'm interested in you know, knowing theology. So, and then, oh, I'm actually, you know, you know, know about the theology. So when I ask, what book have you read? They cannot answer. Whereas she asked me, I was so happy. Now, this eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch, asked, he was reading Isaiah chapter 56. And he asked this most important question about the entire book of Isaiah, perhaps the entire book of Old Testament. That is, who is this suffering servant? Is he the prophet Isaiah or is he talking somebody else? This is a crux of the Old Testament about the Messiah, our suffering Christ, who died on the cross. 
for our sins and resurrected for our eternal life. You know, this is the same passage that I shared with uh, 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 Jewish American grad students at UC Berkeley. First time when I started a, a grad student ministry at UC Berkeley. And this passage saved his life. And this one who led him to Christ. Now, this Ethiopian eunuch, he is the story, today's story, about his, uh, his, his coming to salvation. It's not just an individual uh, reception of Christ. This is a loud and clear gospel proclamation that all human beings are marginalized in the deepest sense of the word and broken and yearning. I open my kingdom and you can join me. Let me read uh, Isaiah chapter 56, uh, 3 to 5. And this is a fulfillment. I I'm sorry, earlier, uh, what the, I, I, I think I mis misquote. The, uh, the passage that an Ethiopian eunuch asking was Isaiah chapter 53. But now, a little bit farther, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3, it said this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch, eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to eunuchs who keeps my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them. Pay attention. I will give within my temple, its walls, a memorial, a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them everlasting name that will endure forever. Do you see this? The story of a salvation of Ethiopian eunuch was a fulfillment of this incredible promise God made for every marginalized person, every mar you know, gender-wise marginalized person, socially, economically, politically, racially, whoever marginalized person, God wants to tell them, I welcome you to my kingdom. My son died for you. You can be my child. That's why this Ethiopian eunuch was so happy when he was baptized and the Philip all of a sudden disappeared. By the way, Philip, Holy Spirit suddenly took away Philip, the word that suddenly took, that's the exactly same word that comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 17, when Bible described the rapture. After that, we all are alive, are still left, we will be cut up together with, all, with them, in, with, the, with them means Jesus and the saints who are coming down from heaven in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Do you know the first rapture in the book in the New Testament was not some kind of esoteric, but it's an evangelistic rapture. God intentionally took the Philip away, so the Ethiopian eunuch will recognize that this is a work of God. This is not a strange guy that just uh, struck the conversation with me. This is a messenger God sent me, and that confirmed his faith. So he returned to Ethiopia without a pastor, without anybody, simply with the word that he read and the gospel explanation and baptism, therefore with the Holy Spirit. And then you know what happened? According to Eusebius, now Lee, you can show Eusebius, the church historian of the fourth century, according to this, I'm running out of town. He, the Ethiopian eunuch, he became 
The event, he is the first builder. Uh, I'm going to read a middle. The he, uh, the he among the uh, first among the Gentiles received the mysteries of a divine word from Philip in consequence of a revelation, having become a first fruit of believers throughout the world. He is said to have been the first on returning to his country to proclaim the knowledge of God of the universe as a life-giving sojourn of our Savior among men, so that through him, in truth, the prophecy obtained is fulfilled, which declares that Ethiopia stretches out his hand, her hand unto God. That was Psalm 68. So he became an evangelist in Ethiopia. Ethiopian eunuch was the first Gentile that received the gospel in the book of Acts. And as some of you know, the Ethiopia has a law, you know, was the longest has the longest continuing history of Christianity. Let me close today's message quickly with the legacy of Philip. Last time we see Philip was Acts chapter 21, verse 7. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. When Paul and his missionary band returned to Israel in their final visitation to Jerusalem, they stayed at Philip's house in Caesarea, the largest city. Today is Tel Aviv. And Luke noticed two things here. That is Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist. That's the first time ever anybody was called as an evangelist in the New Testament. Second, he has four daughters. It's called the uh, prophesize, but it's the same word to uh, preach or proclaim. He has uh, four unmarried daughters who are preachers. By the way, unmarried, that doesn't mean they are just single. That means they devoted their life in preaching of the gospel. It doesn't mean they're young. It means that they took a celibacy to exclusively devote their life in preaching. That's the Philip. For Philip, good news of Jesus Christ is more than just a religious belief. It is a passion. So his entire family, all daughters, they forfeited the marriage and they became preachers of the gospel. I have four women in my house and I pray they become likewise. Let me close uh, sir, uh, today's message with a quote from Seeking Peace written by Eberhard Arnold. Eberhard Arnold is a German theologian and evangelical pastor in the early 1900s. He's a great a friend and mentor of Karl Barth. And uh, this is what he said. Difficulties should not depress or divert us. The cause that has gripped us is so great the small weaknesses of individuals cannot destroy. Therefore, I ask you only one thing. Do not be so worried about yourself. Free yourself from all your plans and aims. They occupy you far too much. Surrender yourself to the sun, the rain, and the wind. As do the flowers and birds, surrender yourself to God. Wish for nothing but one thing and that his will be done, and his kingdom come, and that his nature be revealed, then all will be all. This quote 
strengthened me during this week because I'm unintentionally stumbled somebody in our congregation. Unintended, stupid, dumb mistake. And the Satan tormented me. But you know what? Forrest is bigger than just his pastor. Actually, Forrest's pastor is Jesus Christ. Let, don't let your individual mistakes or your smallness discourage you. Because God in us is a greater and he will lead us. Therefore, as family, we are more precious than the flowers and the birds. God is our father, we are his children. Let us cast our eyes beyond our weaknesses to the wondrous love of God. Let's pray.